From the journeys of belonging to blackness, blackness. I'm India Lorik Wilmot. Nobody else can do this job. You're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Really excited about today's episode. Joining us, we have Black Farmers Collective with Managing Director Ray Williams and Board Treasurer James King Jr. The Black Farmers Collective, based out of central Seattle, Washington, is a group of urban food system activists whose efforts around race, inclusion, and food access are rooted in Black liberation. The Black Farmers Collective are growers, sellers, preparers, educators, and eaters dedicated to providing opportunities to improve the overall health and well-being of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, BIPOC communities, through all aspects of the food system. The impetus of their vision is based on the need for a place for African-American leadership and ownership on the land, the Kwanzaa principle of cooperative economics, and the realization that mitigating the climate crisis requires action to support local production, carbon sequestration, and natural habitat creation. Currently, the Black Farmers Collective has two properties. The first is Yes Farm with two acres, and the second is the newly acquired four-acre Small Axe Farm in Woodenville. The Black Farmers Collective works closely with collaborators such as the Seattle Housing Authority, Seattle University, Earth Corps, and others to not only grow and provide fresh produce and food supplies to families in need, but also to provide education and resources needed to develop local food systems that can sustain the community economically. This all sounds like powerfully important work, and we cannot wait to learn more about the Black Farmers Collective. Welcome, Ray and James King Jr. Uh, Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I believe that farming is more than the activity of growing food, right? So the rich and deep history of Black farming demonstrates the importance of Black economic resiliency, of healing, of thriving, of relying on survival strategies that we've inherited from our ancestors, such as collectivism and commitment to social change. And if you listen to my podcast, you know that I am particularly enjoying conversations, speaking with individuals like yourselves. Are you all ready? Let's go. Right about now. Act one, call to adventure. This is a breakdown. So, Ray... James, there's been a long-standing history of African-descended cooperatives and farmer alliances dating as far back as the Civil War and all the way through the first half of the 20th century. And I'm sure you all are very much familiar with alliances and collectives like the National Federation of Colored Farmers. And when we think about these alliances or cooperatives, we think about their rippling effects and how they've been quite impressive, even though many of them were short-lived. Can you tell our audience What's the origin story of the Black Farmers Collective? Yeah, I guess I'll start. This is Ray here. I have been growing food really in all the spaces that I've lived over my life. I think from the small plots my family had um, growing up into Seattle to spaces that I've, I've started around the country where I've lived. And I was doing some of that work in Seattle, creating sort of community garden spaces. And I actually um, was inspired when I went to a presentation given by uh, Will Allen of Growing Power. This was uh, quite a few years ago, sponsored by 
by the Northwest African American Museum. And at that presentation, other Black folks had gotten together to listen to the presentation. And I, I met some folks I, I, I'm working with and other new folks. And, and we decided that maybe this is something we would try on a small scale in Seattle. So we, we actually started with a corporate nonprofit named Central City Farm Trust. It allowed me to work with some community members to build a farm at uh, Walker Street in Seattle. And that gave me the experience to move forward more and more. Black Farmers Collective really was pulled together in response to the uh, the RFP that Seattle Housing Authority put out to farm the freeway right away in central Seattle, which is now become Yes Farm. So we had an opportunity. We pulled together some more activists, some different folks in the community that have to, had different skills. We were able to convince Seattle Housing authority that we could do this. They then went to Washington Department of Transportation to give us the the actual lease. And it took a a number of years. So I think persistence was part of the the origin story of this. And so when you're talking about farm, can you please describe for our listeners, what does that really mean or what does that look like, especially since the property is located in an urban area? Not a real farm, but a freeway right-of-way. It's 40 feet above the freeway. And I think it's, it's developed further because we realized that actually access to land is one of the most limiting factors. And so that led to this to the, the growing of the organization. I was lucky enough to have known James and ask him if he would be part of the board of directors and he accepted. Great. That's a nice segue. So James, tell us, how did you get involved? Yeah. So Ray and a couple others came across and, and talked to me about Black Farmers Collective, and and I and I've definitely seen some of their work, and and Ray as a, a professor as well worked with him and seeing how he came across students to talk about nutrition and the biology and history, culture, and 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 a lot with food. So I was just down. My family is from the South, deep in Georgia, and and have a connection to the land. So when I thought about it, I thought about my ancestors, I thought about my grandparents. I think it was during the time where people was talking about it was a migration exhibit. And it was talking about people migrating from all across the country and and then coming up here in Seattle and just seeing the elders in in Seattle who was connected to the land. And for me, being 34 and having these elders, like things that I can talk about with my grandparents were things that relate to the community and the elders here. So when, you know, I was asked to be a part of the Black Farmers Collective and what it could potentially be, I was just like, "I'm, I'm game. Let's do it. And so for both of you, what would you say was that pivotal moment that confirmed to you as individuals, but then also as activists in the area that farming as anti-racism and healing work, this was a necessary avenue to achieve things like food sovereignty, food justice, and economic empowerment. For me, things came into, I want to say, segments. So I grew up summers, winters, weekends, uh, going down. I, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, But then I had to go all the way to Upson County, which is like South Georgia, where my grandparents stayed. And, you know, to have 50 plus acres, we had a we had a farm, they had cows, they had pigs. And I can tell everybody that's where the the basis of the action of the environment and caring for the land formed for me. The activism part came in when I came to Morehouse College and partnered with a lot of other uh, people from the AUC, the Atlanta University Center, Clark and Spellman. And we started talking about environmentalism and why Black people are not in it. And I was like, hold up, these are things that, you know, my grandparents did, but they never had the like vocabulary. They never had the academia. We are doing these things. But then what were you starting to see when you were in the greater Atlanta area? 
I started seeing more and more food deserts. So the thing about it, we'll go down to my grandparents and my grandfather will give us a whole garbage bag full of fruits and vegetables uh, to take home. And then we'll put it in the freezer and then we'll cook it and everything else. But I didn't think about like the other people who lived around me who didn't have those resources that didn't have the land to grow or, you know, they had to live on whatever. I didn't think about that until I got into college and then I started seeing it. So it was like, how can we create these gardens? How can we build these gardens? What does it mean to go green? Why do people think that only white people can go green or white rich people can go green? And why are history that is connected to the land. We got brought over here because we was connected to the land. Why that take is taken away from us and not shown to us. Right. And if we are relying on external sources to tell our stories, then we will never be able to hear about our experiences and our actual connections to the land. The story is not told about, you know, Native Americans who who've been doing this work for centuries and millennia. Um, and it's not talk about African-Americans when we talk about the godfather of environmental justice movement, Dr. Robert Bullard, our stories are not even told. Like even Dr. King as an environmentalist is not told. I want to be able to be there to tell these stories, change the narrative surrounding our people saying that, you know, when we're in the soil, that no, we don't have to be enslaved to touch soil. We can grab land, we can produce, take care of the land, and then take care of our families for generations and generations moving on. And then serendipity for Ray then to later on say, can you join us in this effort? You know, I think, again, it, there wasn't an individual pivotal moment, I think, but it was a coming together of, of some of the work I'd done. I mean, I'm a career science teacher. And so I started early on looking at educational inequities. I took a, look, a little look at uh, health inequities. I was part of a um, HIV vaccine trials community advisory board, which then really gave me more information about health inequities, especially especially in the Black community, I was looking for some way to give back to the community. And I felt that, well, maybe uh, growing a little bit of, of your own food might actually be one of the best things you can do for your for your health. You're, you're getting the stress relief of being engaged in nature and, and, and all of the benefits that go with connecting with nature and connecting our own human self with this larger natural piece. You get some physical exercise, which I think we all could use a little bit more of as we try to reduce our cholesterol and and keep our, ourselves more healthy. And then this this all comes together, I think, in a really healing of building a community around that work of being a producer, of producing something that is going to be good for your community. Ray, can you speak a little bit more about that? You know, I started with the idea that maybe this could be a, a, a real cooperative farm that would help with economic development. And I think we're, we're building toward that, right? But I think one of the bigger pieces, especially early on in smaller spaces, is that you're able to to meet folks and work with folks that, that really you can build a, a sense of belonging. And so one of the things in terms of the environmental movement is has this picture of, of white people do the environmental movement, people of color don't go into the woods. Absolutely. Many reasons. But how do we how do we get over that some of that historic mama? And one way is to create spaces that are safe, create spaces that when you go there, you see people that look like yourself and you can really engage in, in nature. Now, that's a heavy task. So how do you go about doing that kind of work? 
we work with weeding and planting and harvesting. We're able to share this, this bounty with mutual aid networks that are, that are giving away food, right? Food boxes. You know, we have, have risen and become productive right when we were needed, when folks needed food last year during the pandemic. And so we were able to, to funnel uh, as much as we could, and we continue to do that. I appreciate both of you really giving a a wholesome perspective around the origin story and what brought both of you to the efforts, right? Making the connections between the physical act of farming, how labor intensive it is. It's not for the, the, the weak of body nor knees, but also it's around restoration. It could be restorative. It could be another activity around building and and building community, that sort of mutuality that was necessary, particularly here in the United States, since that's our location, for African-descended folks. It was the mutuality and the development of these kinds of aids and activities that bonded us together, particularly when the external world was not supportive of our existence and that exploited our labor. What I appreciate too is the juxtaposition of that along with the narrative that we too within our own community perpetuate around being African descended and being connected to the land. Because I think in many ways, when we think about the the length of the great migration, people were fleeing the land. Now, granted, they were historical and sociopolitical and other kinds of uh, safety reasons why we needed to flee the land. But fleeing the land also came with people thinking, well, if I'm going to relocate, I want a new beginning. But sometimes that new beginning meant leaving things behind. It was our ties to agriculture. It was our ties to the land. I know for myself on one side of my family where my grandfather fled South Carolina. He came back from World War II and actually saw men in uniform like himself being lynched and leaving in under the cloak of night to the north. And what that meant was you're leaving the land that your foreparents were connected to. But then now it's lovely to see a, a resurgence and a reconnection to that. And so I appreciate what you both have raised. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's really crazy how we're connected. I mean, you, you talk about how we leave, but we can also talk about like those who left, they took seeds with them and mm-hmm. they replanted those seeds and communities to spark a new community, to feed that community. And it also, those seeds kept the heritage, the love thing. We was in a conference talking about collards. And so to figure out how like collards were connected to collards in the South and then how collards and these seeds come all the way up here. And then our connection to them, Pacific Northwest, you know, to see how they're flourishing. Like these collards have a history to tell and and those who cook them and prepare them and feed their families, feed their souls. That That's a connection. And that's a story in itself, man. It's, it's beautiful to tell that story. Act two, the road. So James and Ray, both of you talked about your own journey to farming and both of you cited to your own familial connections and experiences with grandparents and other relatives. And you both touched on some of your own work, whether it's through education, as you were saying, Ray, as a professor, but then also for you, James, too, in terms of being very much aware and focused on environmental and food justice. So if we can pivot a little bit and talk more about the environmental and food justice efforts. What's your intentionality? What are you working on? And and why are these elements important? 
a couple of my intentions, I think, in continuing this work. One is to support folk, you know, going back to this idea of plants as being producers, the idea that we, we as a community can be producers, and this can lead to the economic development that we all need, uh, produce food, but we can also be in a position to do value-added products from that food. I think in terms of environmentalism, you know, I was, I had the opportunity to go to the UN Environmental Conference in 1991 in Rio, and I was with a group of students. And I'm, you know, as I reflect back, and then as a science teacher, you know, talking about the physics of climate change, the physics of, yes, carbon dioxide, you know, does trap more uh, infrared radiation, and that we are, we are warming up. And then to see that over that last, wow, that's 40 years, Earth has been warming, but we are just getting to the point that where I think we're taking this seriously. For me, it's sorry, next generation, but what can I do from going forward to try to help mitigate some of this? And so I think having the urban farming space so people can grow food and, and see how it's done. And we're certainly lucky to be able to, to lease this four acres from King County. You know, they had the foresight to buy this 30 years ago, and now it is still in farming instead of a industrial area or something. But we can be a model for sustainability. You're small, so you can pivot and react more quickly to climate change and other issues to, to be able to continue to produce the food and to produce the food locally. You know, I'm certainly trying to put myself in a position to pass this off. And Ray, what is it about the legacy of passing it on that's very important to you? That's what I think the gift that we can give is to for opportunities for that the next generation to pick this up and, and move it forward. And for you, James? My thing is to open up various different experiences with youth. And, and, I don't, and I'm not even just saying youth. Let's, let's go ahead and just say K through gray, and especially in the African-American communities, like people who want to, you know, they find the love and passion. They already, oh, I guess some people say their second career. I work with people who their second career went into the environmental field just based on the trips that we've been on or touching the soil. And then they coming up with ideas, which I want to go green. I want to put this job away. And I want to go into this field from looking at students that are teenagers that never seen these environmental jobs and how much they pay and to open up them. These opportunities is saying that you can do something for not only your community, but you can do something financially for yourself and your household and it will support your community and it will support the environment. And then if all those small communities do it, we're, we're making a big impact on a global basis. My thing is, like I said, is to introduce the history, the culture, the job opportunities and allow people to segue for those who are in the already in the fields so they can connect and they can grow their opportunities and they can see whatever they want to do, whatever they want to go. OK, James, so give us an example. Like I'm working on a project with taking some youth um, that were formerly incarcerated. We call it shark therapy. Therapy, uh, taking them snorkeling with sharks. And then we're introducing diving with them, region, urban ecology with them. We're talking about waterways and how we impact waters. We're talking about sharks and how we impact sharks plus more. And we're talking about all those ecological systems that we impact on our daily basis. Then I'm also working with Ray. We work with a program, our urban teens, where we bring in youth and they get to touch the soil. And then we bring in scientists and we bring in other professionals of color, a sister that is a doctor and she works with soil. And they like, how did you do this? And she said, I was just playing in dirt as a kid. And those experiences of playing in dirt as a kid turned into a job for her to work in various different fields and go across the world and be and can be traveled. 
So I want those experiences for our, for our youth. I don't want them to feel as though they have to be pigeonholed to one zip code that they can expand out and then they can still help their community and they can still grow and and define who they want to be in the environmental world. Indeed. And the work is not only about empowering young people, but it's also providing space and latitude for allies to provide support and very particular types of support that's culturally appropriate. Can you speak on that? I mean, when we think about food justice, I think about how even those who want to help us, they still enforce these colonizing aspects of what help is. And for me, I'm like, no, we have to open up. And, and what open up means is if you're, ho- if you're helping uh, a Nigerian community, you know, what does that mean? What does support truly mean for them in, in food justice? It's broadening the very myopic perspective of how we look to our environment and looking to the land. Mm -hmm. Being involved in, say, one aspect of food justice efforts isn't only around agriculture, but it's maybe different kinds of or different facets of the field or of the sector, or just thinking of ways in which all of these dots within the ecology of opportunity are connected to one another. What I also think about as you were both speaking was just concepts behind the notion of land and the kinds of cultural models that come to my mind when I think about the word involves culture, opportunity for self-sufficiency, and of course, land being a wealth building asset. Yet we know, and for those who may be unaware, when Black farmers in the United States currently represent less than 2% of the overall farming population, and that land acquisition and ownership that once existed, even at the first half of the 20th century, remains a significant problem. So I know that both of you have spoken out publicly around the U.S. Department of Agriculture's federal relief bill, and we know that it's been halted. What impacts does this halted federal relief bill have on Black farmers today? At the end of the day, those those light bills got to be paid. The farm equipment has to be paid for. And if USDA paused for a day or second, that is something that brings more trauma to, to those who are holding on at the end of the string. Yeah, USDA has to take this serious and they have to step up. They know the numbers. They see the numbers. And why do we as Black people, as Americans say, support us? It is our dollars, our taxpayer dollars. It frustrates me more and more that people have to go to Congress, go back to Congress again and again to say, hey, you were never truly supporting us in our needs and and investing in us like you should. And it's not like we're asking for something that is foreign to giving it to uh, African-Americans like it should. We know the USDA department is the second biggest funds that allocated funds by Congress. And it's like black folks is not getting helped out. Other people of color are not getting helped out. Young farmers are not getting helped out. So I'm looking and I'm going, hey, this money is going into somebody's pockets over and over again. And they're failing us. But yet and still, we have people at the end of the string holding on and, and they're doing what they need to do. And we're, we're failing them as Americans. And what are your thoughts on this, Ray? 
I think it's important to put a little sort of context around those numbers, that 2%. So I would say over the last 50, 70 years, farmers in general have been put under economic pressure as the size has been of farms has increased, as there's more middle people that take away the profits that, that we're separating the farmer from the, the actual uh, consumer. And farmers overall have been taken advantage of by a system that has figured out that you have to take out a loan to get your crops going, and then we can get that interest as you pay it back. And then we can say, oh, black farmers, we're not going to give you that loan, or we're going to give you less of a loan, or we're going to delay your paperwork. You delay the paperwork for three weeks in a bank, you put the farmer behind. You know, the USDA is, it, this is not really a handout. What it is, is recognizing that the system has been bad on farmers and really bad on black farmers to the point of, yeah, I want that guy's land. So I'm going to conspire with my banker to, to put him out of business. So this has been happening. It's been documented. Black farmers have to be legal experts as well to protect their assets. We need to, to realize that the systemic racism that supports white supremacy in the United States and the world is been acting and well as as gently in any sector as it has in in agriculture. Folks need to understand the background that there has been this discrimination. And we say, oh, folks are now challenging this this idea that we should we should try to support folks that have been disenfranchised. So it's a, really another example of of how the system pushes us back to this, you know, narrow definition of who should be successful and who might be worthy of, you know, government support, right? Where we can support uh the growing of wheat and corn to feed our cows so we can get the dollar hamburger, but we can't get a dime so we can support the growing of fresh vegetables so we can become a healthier society. Okay, so then what is the recourse? I think you're getting a lot of Black people, people of color saying, wait a minute, you know, I, I can go back to some of the beginning. You know, a lot of folks say, I'm not going to work for corporate. I want to have my own job. I want to have my own business. And I think if we can open that up to small scale farming, you know, and I go back to the old folks and I'm old enough to to have not grandparents, but parents, friends of parents that they needed, whether it's in the country or in the city, to be able to grow enough food and put enough food by. Right. If you've got enough canned beans um, that you're going to make it through some of the hard times. And that's why you do some of this work. Right. To bring back the self-sufficiency, the the pride that comes with being able to take care of yourself at, at every level. And I know we're not going to be growing enough food in our little plots in the city to feed the city. Right. We are contributing to the supply, uh, you know, of food that we all need to be to be healthy. So I appreciate both you, Ray and James, and talking about and really putting forth the historical context, why the impact of the halted federal relief bill will have specifically on Black farmers. Same way as we looked at the housing and redlining and the, the very insidious and systematic ways in which banks and other corporations down to the real estate agents and community people in, in neighborhoods block another wealth and asset building opportunity for African descended folks. And, and that's just even on, as you were saying, James, leasing of farm machinery and tools to getting a loan so that they can buy the appropriate seed. Because we know about farming, if you don't plant your seed at a particular time, you've lost the whole harvest, right? And so what are the endemic impacts of that? One of the things I want to talk about, too, is this aspect around land acquisition, because even for yourselves as the, the Black Farmers Collective, you're leasing. You're not you don't own. You know, how is it that we get to contend with the real life 
issues where we have local municipalities that are notorious for either claiming eminent domain or engaging in these nefarious practices that force BIPOC farmers off of their land, even in urban areas as well. What does land acquisition look like and what can we do? You know, we have to talk about land acquisition as a community now, just because of the price of land is is like going up and seeing, you know, how we can, you know, talk about it in our local, our state or federal jurisdictions, how to acquire and what does that look like. But we also got to talk about the past because you you mentioned how land was just snatched from taxpayers and especially black taxpayers and how and, and let's go back like these lands were, were snatched and then created as parks or other areas. And so when we look at the history and when we look at now, we have to have deep access activist conversations about how we're going to change this system and who we are voting for to put them into to represent us to help us change these systems so we can acquire the land so we can talk about the system how we can change the system as i see right now in these major cities as developers as these big skyscrapers coming on and yes they're helping they're putting some people in houses and stuff but they're also taking away access to land and where people can grow so i look at it all the time and i, and I bring it up in our board meetings like how we we need to move forward and acquiring land, our own land, because these two leases can go up uh, tomorrow. Anybody that's have some authority or power or somebody who has influence and want to say, hey, we want to build a, a condo right here or or we want to build a house or we don't think that that should be utilized for that purposes. They can just take it and our vision and our goals have to be changed, redirected. But that means the community would then need to come together and then act. And what that act looks like like is going to be based on the conversation that we have, but we need to act and we need to know that what happened to some of our ancestors before would not happen to us moving forward. And also we need to look at those stories where we had ancestors that stood up and fought for their land and to use that as as something to, to empower us. We can't neglect those stories as well. We have some strong, strong Black women that sat on that porch with that shotgun and said, not here, not in my house, not my land. And I'll be dead, buried six feet deep before you touch this land for my family. We have to take those strong stories as well and push them forward to show that we don't want no problems. We just want we just want what's due. So then what's the land pricing situation currently in Seattle? These prices in Seattle just for a lot will be sometimes doing more to pay the city or to pay on this lot than what we could be doing to help put food on table or to teach people how how to put their own food on their own table. That's what I think about land acquisition right now. It's actually forced us to sort of expand our vision of what we're around, right? We have the small lease in central Seattle. It's actually a great partnership. And I think we're doing the, the city and the state uh, a great favor by activating the space. So I, you know, I feel we're going to be there as we're impacted by building around us. I do thank King County for taking a look at their land leasing policies. And instead of leasing a lot of farmland to one or two large farming families that have lots of farm around to say, look, we're going to actually put in the time and effort to find smaller uh, BIPOC farmers to take some of this land. So I think the county, you know, has a good heart and, and is moving forward in trying to increase access to land around here. But the the point about acquisition is, and again, you have a lease, even if you are not worried, and I might be naive, 
you're not worried about losing that, you know, it's actually ownership, which then gives you the ability to do really what you want on the land, right? You're leasing it. There's certainly um, stipulations about how, how to do it. But once you're owning it, then you can really, as I'm starting to say, release the brilliance of how you're, how you're going to use this. So what's then the strategy for BIPOC farmers to then acquire this land? So in terms of actually where, where I feel we need to be is that we need to get ourselves in a position to when some of those farms are for sale and we find someone that's willing to sell it and that we already have our ducks in a row in order to, to make that happen ra- rather than say, oh, please give us six months till, till where we get it together. I think that's an important piece to look forward in, into this. I think it's going to take some um, philanthropy from some of the folks that have made a lot of money in the Pacific Northwest and are really looking to put it in some place that will work. I think there's some grants that are going to need to be happening. I think we need to have relationships with banks or someone who's going to lend that so that we are not going through a process that was designed to keep us out, but rather is is changing to a process that is welcoming us. And I think we need to build our own skills and have our own accomplishments and, and honest accomplishments. That's not just telling people how good we are, but actually showing that we've been able to take these two acres and develop a farm, that we've been able to take these four acres and train up the, the number of small farmers that we're going to be able to give opportunities to, to be on the land, but in a space that's welcoming to them. We work with those folks that have been traditional gatekeepers to see their responsibility to to be fair and, and open this up. What do you hope to achieve with the Black Farmers Collective and its presence in the community? We're hoping that with our action in these various communities, um, when they see that, you know, my face, not so, but when they see James's face, they don't freak out. They don't tighten up. They don't say, oh, Oh, I, I I can't deal with this and, and, and go back inside. That they're ready to embrace the, the diversity that is is America right now. And I think the timeliness around the two global pandemics, COVID plus Black Lives Matter, the global movement, mm-hmm. the timeliness of that has really helped to galvanize public conversations and the discourse to be able to shift, as well as by my own observation, that there's an upsprout of so many different kinds of cooperatives and alliances by BIPOCs, even in your area, who are doing some very similar work, that there is opportunity around community building and empowerment where you all can come together. And if it's like, oh, our collective and this alliance and this cooperative bands together because there's power and unity, then perhaps you might get to that place a little bit faster in terms of acquiring land to purchase. Ray and James, I think it would be really important as part of our conversation where we're really talking about community building and empowerment for you to identify what are some of the specific challenges the collective continues to face in this space, particularly around being in an urban area, farming and that sort of thing. And then what are some of the supports that you all have identified that you need to overcome these challenges? That's a good question. We are a fairly young organization and we we're looking at land ownership and and what does that look like for us moving towards? So how can find more supporters that not only donate their their time, but can help us in a financial sense getting land? We're looking at really defining ourselves as a board and seeing how we can add more people, add more thought into this collective and see how we can support various other people who are connected to the land, Black people that are connected to the land. How can we support other Black farmers 
And what does that look like if it's a Black farmer that is wanting to produce fabric and if there's a Black farmer that just want to get land acquisition? Those are things that we have been thinking about and how we can support, but also we need more people into the collective to be able to sprout those ideas. Those are those are the things that I say moving forward are, are some of the barriers that we're coming across and things that we want to address. But like I said, we're we're still a young organization. But the, the biggest thing right now is we're developing jobs, putting food, we're educating young people about farming. We are changing the narrative. And, you know, even though we're called the Black Farmers Collective, trust me, no lie, we are a space that's so welcoming that we had different festivals and events that were collaborated with other communities of color and, and others, but still hold our blackness. The barriers, that's an interesting question. You're farming on marginal land right in the city that someone has yet to develop. One of the things that we run into is that there's the the tragedy of the fact that so many folks in Seattle don't have a house to live in, right? So the unhoused folks are also out there. And so some of our our struggles are with inter- interacting with folks like that. I think uh, at Yes Farm, we've tried our best to support folks that are there, but discourage them from, from doing some of the things that would be destructive to the plants and the infrastructure there. Another barrier to us is that, you know, unlike many cities, Seattle is growing. And so all those spaces really are under pressure for development. And along with the development, especially because of high cost of building, then comes this gentrification. So people are being gentrified out of the neighborhood. The small backyard patch of collards that was brought here 40 years ago, right? And it's still being grown, is being gentrified out of the neighborhood. And we're left with much higher density. In light of these factors, then, how did the collective decide the location of the farm? One of the reasons we chose this Yes Farm site is that the Department of Transportation isn't going to be building on what probably was going to be a freeway exit. It's land that I think we're going to be able to support the community through. Again, a lease is great with the county, but it would be better to have ownership. To support us in that ownership, there's folks local to Seattle. We'd love to have you come out to Yes Farm. It's really at the intersection of Yesler and Interstate 5, Tuesdays and Saturdays, volunteer days. From 10 to 3, we really get such a great diversity of community folks wanting to come out. We've actually, we're next to Yeser Terrace, which is the actually oldest integrated housing project in the country. Right? Part of our residential segregation came that we were actually segregated our housing project. That redevelopment has created a new set of community members who can afford the higher rate. And it's reduced the, the actual yard space folks have had as, as they move from the older buildings into apartment buildings. So what we've done at Yes Farm is to create some community garden space. And so we do have beds that people in the community can come and grow some of their own food. So in terms of all of the supporters and collaborators. Can you share with our audience who those entities are and and perhaps maybe you can even thank them for their support? Well, I, I certainly do want to thank our, our partners for support and I can't really name all of them. We really got a lot. I do want to uh, give a shout out to the young folks that have really kept this organization going, right? Anna Wilson and Devon Williams over at Yes Farm and then Masra Klamengu over at Small Axe Farm are actually working for the Black Farmers Collective 
perspective. And then certainly our board members, a lot of uh, very intelligent young folks that have, have been able to support us. And then and, and then a lot of our community partners, Seattle Housing Authority to, to be the intermediary with the Washington Department of Transportation over Yes Farm, the folks at King County. I think Earth Corps has been a great supporter of us, Seattle University, lots of folks have have seen, I think, the opportunity here to support us and have been very generous with their time and money. So thanks very much to everybody. I am sure the Black Farmers Collective has and can serve as a wonderful model for other communities in different states to do the same sort of work that you're doing in terms of food justice and environmental justice. I get folks writing from all over the country asking a bit about what you're doing and how we, we might be able to do it here. You know, we certainly are accepting of donations to, to really support ourselves. I think we've, we are developing some markets for our food, which is great. We get some money through educational opportunities that we're applying. And we've been fortunate to be able to get some grants to keep us going. And so any sort of a donation to us really goes directly into helping to pay folks rather than having volunteers, you know, all the time at the farm. That would be what, you know, I would ask of, 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 of our listeners here is thinking about how, what can you do to try to support this effort really in your local community and then larger if you want to, if you want to support us out here in, in the great Northwest. Get it, get it. Act three where we land. Cumulatively, all of these efforts really then help to push the needle in a more positive direction around resilient food systems and environmental justice and all of the things that have motivated you both individually, but also members of the collective to then band together to really use this one facet around farming as a way to amplify and to support our communities. So to close out, I'm going to ask a very large question, and that is, what does Black liberation look like, and specifically for the Black Farmers Collective? We need to be liberated in our mind and our bodies. I think we are still in in our community, still in bondage over some of the ways that we have learned as a community to react to the outside and, and each other in terms of coming up through through slavery and Jim Crow. And I need I think we really need to look at what internalized racism is, what are the actions that some of the things that we do with inside our community that may have been uh, or certainly were advantageous then are now keeping each other down. And, you know, maybe the fact that we're getting together and talking about liberation will allow us, I think, to, uh, to address some of those things. I think we also need to be liberated with our body, right? I mean, Black Lives Matter is such a key phrase because throughout most of the history, Black bodies did not matter. Part of liberating your body is is saying that, yes, my body is important. My body is important enough to spend the time and energy to get better food. My body is important enough to, to realize that if the stress I'm carrying because I need to provide is also going to kill me, and so I need to take a look at my mental health. I think we need to say, yes, I'm important enough, and so to eat well, to reduce my stress, to be supportive of my family. That's what liberation is. And if we can give people an opportunity to get a little of that by getting their hands in the soil or even being with people that are getting their hands in the soil, then I I think that's a step toward this sort of liberation, sort of both mentally and physically from a system that really has developed to keep us and everyone really down. And it's healing because there's something very, you know, perhaps meditative around farming, very healing 
feeling very cathartic to really feel physically that you're rooted in something. And so this gives folks some opportunities. Can you please remind folks where they can find you and learn more about the organization, how to donate, how to get involved, if you can share all of the social media handles in addition to the website? Uh, you can always find us on blackfarmerscollective.com. You can donate on that page as well. And then we are on IG as Black Black Farmers Collective. The email is blackfarmerscollective at gmail.com. I wouldn't be a boy treasurer if I didn't put out the axe and say you would love to donate black farmerscollective.com and hit the donate button if you cannot be physically there. Well, thank you, Black Farmers Collective, Ray Williams and James King Jr. for joining us and sharing your journeys of belonging to blackness. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Wonderful show. Yes, thank you. Thank you. There you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace. We are all on our own journeys, and sometimes these journeys take us to different parts of the globe. If you're interested in learning more about Black and Brown people's experiences living across the globe or are contemplating embarking upon your own journey to live in another country, then you should check out the podcast, The Global Chatter, hosted by the Black expat founder, Amanda Beats. Each week, Amanda and her guests talk international mobility, identity, race, career, and more. The Global Chatter is available wherever you listen to podcasts.